Clearly, then, you must also be ignorant of the fact that the clouds are also patrons of a varied group of gentlemen comprising chiropractors, prophets, longhairs, quacks, fops, charlatans, dithyrambic poets, scientists, dandies, astrologers, and other men of leisure. And because all alike, without exception, walk with their heads among the clouds and base their inspiration on the murky muse, the clouds support them and feed them. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to the Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. Hi, I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pietsch. And I'm Soren Riergaard. We are very glad to have you back with us tonight. We're going to be talking about Aristophanes' comedy, The Clouds. Um, this is, as a reminder, a part of our season on Middle March. This is the second part of our season, The Key to All Mythologies. We had a, a very raucous episode last time on Carl's first pick, which was Voltaire's Candide. We're going to carry some of that energy through today into The Clouds, which is another very funny text um, and a very, in some ways, sort of anti-philosophy text like Candide was. Uh, but first, as always, a little housekeeping. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Karamazov. We're on Twitter at TheReadersK. You can email us at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. You can find this pod on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on our website through Podbean, thereaderskaramazov.podbean.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and in fact, we have some listener feedback today. I have a little Ooh. bit from, from Twitter that I'm going to share in a bit um, when we get into the clouds, because it's actually about the clouds. But I did want to share a reader email that we got recently about middle March. We received this too late, unfortunately, to, to include it in our Candide episode, but I'm including it now because I thought it was, the listener had some very good insights into middle March. So this is from listener Nicole. This is what she writes in. She says, hello, readers, Karamazov. I am obsessed with middle March and I'm completely obsessed with your podcasts on it. Excellent. Thank you. I'm currently listening to the last one and plan to start over at the beginning and listen to them all again while I read the book after wow. I finish. Listeners, be like Nicole. I've had some thoughts while listening to the podcast so far, and I thought I'd take this opportunity to join the conversation. And so she's got a few different observations she wants to share from us. And I'm, I'm reading this mostly unedited from her because they're really good thoughts. She says this, On the topic of Elliot presenting characters with both compassion and skepticism, when we first meet Celia and Dorothea, as they go through their late mother's jewelry, Celia is pushing Dorothea to take items. When Dorothea chooses an emerald bracelet and ring, Celia tells her that she must keep them. Elliot says that even as Celia tells Dorothea to keep them, she was thinking of how well the emeralds would have looked on herself. Mm. It was a jarring comment by Elliot the first time I read it. I thought, how unnecessary to make Celia look bad. It tells you early on, though, that this novel exudes truthful pictures of the characters. So I thought that was a really good comment. This is a, a movie-related comment, which I thought was really nice since we talked a good bit about movie parallels here. 
This is what she says about Fred Vinci. She says, I never thought about it lis- uh, until listening to the podcast where you described Fred-, Fred Vinci as a college graduate who does not know what to do with his life. He is the graduate. So that was pretty great. Um, he's, there's a little bit. She says, thankfully, his love of Mary Garth probably kept him from any potential Mrs. Robinson. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, so. I was waiting for it. <laughs> uh, but I thought that was wonderful. Um, and then and she, she wanted to talk about Bullstrode because she said um, – this is one of her favorite parts on the compassion she shows for Bulstrode. The scene with Bulstrode and his wife after the truth comes out about his wealth is one of my favorite scenes in the book. Nicole says, as they mourn together, Elliot writes, she could not say how much is only slander and false suspicion. And he did not say I am innocent. She said, I love the beauty of their honesty as they mourned together. I thought that was really wonderful. And then she had one more thought that I was really, I thought was really interesting that I can't believe I didn't think about really as I was going through, other than giving it a few brief thoughts, but it's about Dorothea and Lydgate. She says, you mentioned how Lydgate and Dorothea are the centers of the web, but that they rarely meet. I think with both of their bad marriages and their personalities, Elliot makes it pretty clear that they would have made a great match. Dorothea would have been the wife Lydgate really needed to support his work in a frugal, prudent, and actually really helpful way. Lydgate's work could have given Dorothea what she wanted in life as well, a grand work but also passion in marriage and for life. At the engagement dinner where they first meet, Lydgate actually opines to himself that Dorothea would not be a desirable wife, then goes on to marry someone he thinks he needs and wants, but who does him no good. It's not until his bad marriage and meeting Dorothea much later that he may have realized what he should have been looking for in a wife. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, and I maybe had briefly considered them as a match, but I thought it was a good insight that they actually are very compatible in what they want out of life and might have made a better match. And that's maybe part of what's going on is that Elliot is showing us that sometimes these things are out of our control because obviously they didn't meet at a time when it would have been possible for them to be a match. And certainly on Lydgate's part, he wasn't ready to make that match. And she went on Mm -hmm. to say in a follow-up comment, she thought Lydgate, in order to be a good husband to Dorothea, probably would have had to adjust his expectations of what a wife should be. Because he clearly wanted somebody very decorative, and that's not Dorothea. Those are those are really wonderful thoughts. Uh, yeah, thank you, so much, Nicole, Nicole, for 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 writing in and sharing with us. Um, we love reader feedback on everything. That's a nice way to think through some of the themes that we picked up on on our different podcasts about Middlemarch. So thank you, Nicole. Let that be an inspiration to others. Write in and talk to us, and we'll get to our Twitter comment in just a minute. But first, I want to start with our summary, as we always do, of our works. I'm really excited to try to describe the clouds to you. It's a really weird, really weird work. It's difficult to summarize maybe in a different way from Candide where you have a whole bunch of plot. There's not tons of stuff that happens over the course of this play, but it's very strange. So the clouds written by Aristophanes in ancient Athens, and he's taking as his main target of attack Socrates, but then also sort of a related complex of sophists and philosophers and thinkers who are in Athens at this time. The main character of the play is an old man named Strepsiades, and he's a, he's a farmer. He's been very successful as a farmer, but he has a problem, which is that his son is kind of a dandy, and all his son wants to do is lounge around and ride expensive horses and take care of his body. He doesn't want to do any actual work. Because of this, Strepsiades is massively in debt. Luckily, right next door to his, his place in town is an institution called the Thinkery. And in the Thinkery, Socrates takes students and he teaches them essentially how to lie to people and cheat people out of money. 
And so Strepsides says, aha, this is what we need to do. So he gets his son, he tries to convince his son to go into the thinkery and be trained. At first his son resists, and so Strepsides himself goes in, and what he discovers inside the thinkery is this very strange cult, essentially, where Socrates is leading people away from the gods of the city of Athens and towards the worship of the clouds as the animating principle of the world. Um, There's also sort of this very strange idea that the world essentially runs like a convection oven, and that's what explains everything in the world. But then the clouds are there as sort of divine figures. They're what cause everything good to come upon the earth. And so Strepsiades undertakes this education in lying, basically, the school for scoundrels or something like that. And the invention of he, lying. He, the invention of lying, yes. No. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's too early in the night for a Ricky Gervais <laughs> reference. But he he undergoes this training to be basically be able to fool people. And what he wants to do is get out of his debts. Eventually, his son goes in and also learns, and his son is very successful at this, and in fact, does help chase away Strepsiades creditors. But then, because of his newfound impertinence, also tries to beat up Strepsiades and basically take over the family. At the very end, we cut to... Strepsiades is trying to burn down the thinkery and everybody kind of rushing out of it as things go up in flames. And so that's that's the plot of The Clouds. It is, like all uh, all ancient Greek comedy that we have, I think the best correlate t- to contemporary society would be something like South Park, right? Where you have this very, sometimes very funny, sometimes not, but sometimes very funny social satire, right? This very corrosive attitude towards current events and things like that paired with then this very deeply scatological sense of humor. So one of the great lines of the book is Strepsides wanders into the thinkery. Socrates is looking up at the sky and a lizard just takes a giant dump in his mouth. And that's like the, the level of humor that's going on here, right? There's a lot of farting. There's a lot of, uh, oftentimes Aristophanes claims this is not the case in this play, although my translator really seems to think otherwise. But oftentimes the characters in Greek comedy are wearing these giant penises strapped to them. And they just walk around stage with giant erect penises, right? So this is like the level of humor that's going on. But then paired with some very trenchant insights into Athenian society. There's a lot to think about with the clouds. We've got to think about Socrates. We've got to think about wisdom. We've got to think about the organization of society. And I want to toss it over to you and and see where you all want to take this. But I do want to at least start by offering these questions that came to us via Twitter. So this is Twitter user Winnie4Prez who has a delightful Winnie the Pooh avatar. Uh, I automatically trust her uh, because of this. Here's what she says. She says, I'm wondering if you guys can talk about how Aristophanes' description of Socrates, a humorous, bumbling old fool, contrasts with the seriousness with which Athens ultimately took his work by killing him. Was Aristophanes just humoring something that his audience was afraid of? Or did Aristophanes just not take it that seriously? Or, again, is Aristophanes is trying to show his audience how ridiculous the idea is that Socrates is actually dangerous. So there's a couple of different questions from Winnie. I thought they were really good um, to keep in our minds as we're talking about what's going on here. I will offer the caveat, none of the three of us are classics scholars. We're not experts in ancient Greece. We know an amateur's amount about it, uh, but we're enthusiastic about it. So don't take any of these things as the ultimate answer on these questions. But but I think we have some thoughts about how this play is thinking about Socrates and then incorporating that into the humor of the play and the, maybe the general political and philosophical attitudes 
of the play. So we'll keep that in mind as we as we go around the horn here and, and talk through things. But I'm going to toss it over to you all, um, and you can just take us where you want to take us. Um, Soren, can you read the last option that the Twitter users said? Yeah, for... um, the last option uh, from Winnie was, is Aristophanes trying to show his audience how ridiculous the idea is that Socrates is actually dangerous? That last option seems like the best one to me. In my Hackett edition of The Clouds, there's an introduction by Ian C. Story, and I take him to be fairly good at running down some of the scholarship from an expert's point of view on the clouds and on Aristophanes in general. And his take is that because Plato and others treat Aristophanes kindly in their works, that there's... um, a mutual sort of ribbing going on amongst friends as opposed to denouncing. This isn't like a Derrida versus John Searle uh, argument, uh, you know, hatred Deep of cut. each other. Yeah, um, Twitter takedowns before there was Twitter about their horrible, you know, inability to do philosophy that the other thinks the other is doing. It seems more to me that there is a point about good philosophers and good people trying to do certain things that are very elegant and very articulate with thinking and a certain Socratic reductio ad absurdum that has some merit. And I think I think Aristophanes actually has a really interesting philosophical point about that, which maybe I'll talk about later. But at the same time, on the other hand, what's being lambasted to me in the clouds is the Socratic school. It's one thing to be a great thinker and it's another thing to be a pretentious follower of a great thinker or a person who thinks that some association with a great mind makes you a great mind. And that slight difference seems to be all the room for Aristophanes to really jump on and attack what is the ultimate effect of Socrates in Greece. There's one Socrates and there are many would-be Socrateses out there who aren't exactly, through their questioning, helping anybody. They're instead keen to, as you know, if we like hate on lawyers for a second, many lawyers are keen to make the worse argument seem the better or make it so that people gain a lot of money through their lawsuits, uh, which perhaps they don't need or don't deserve. It's that kind of attitude that Aristophanes has towards like a certain corrupt institution. Yeah, I think I agree with what uh, Carl is saying as well uh, and that last option presented by our, our devoted listener. And that it reminds me of sort of like, I guess my filmic example is Death of Stalin, but this is just an historical truth that like these farcical events are unfolding and unrolling and you're looking at the sort of ridiculousness of a, and not to say that Aristophanes thinks Socrates is ridiculous in total, but the sophists and and maybe, as Carl was saying, followers who are misguided but want that glisten of uh, intellect near them or association with them, that the sort of anger and disapproval and disavowal that, that can get stirred up by comic takedowns of major figures can then have truly tragic major results that don't seem like they're going to take effect until they've already taken effect. Historically, I don't uh, have the uh, you know capacity to describe what led to Socrates' death, other than that it was like 20 plus years after this was written, right? Like well after this was written. 
Yeah, a good, a good while after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that there's more of a playful ribbing going on. And, uh, you know, my editors of the edition I have, who are both uh, Wests, Thomas G. and Grace Starry West, also, like Carl was pointing out, kind of uh, mark a difference between Plato's Socrates and the Aristophanic Socrates. I will say, as a complete shift in gears before throwing it back to Soren, that uh, there is a nice connection to Middlemarch beyond the key to all mythologies, which is that they're both partly about lovers of horse flesh and that we have the Fred Vinci figure <laughs> here. Oh, God. Pheidippides uh, beginning with horse trading that's getting them in trouble, which is exactly how Fred Vinci's <laughs> problems all begin. Maybe George Eliot was looking back at this when she was writing. Uh, I think that is a great point. I want to make one historical note here um, that I do think is important for understanding. Uh, to, to go back to Carl's point about followers being unable to live up to the legacy of their leaders, it's, I think, pretty clear that one person that Aristophanes has in mind, especially in the character of Pheidippides, who's Strepsiades' son, is the figure of Alcibiades, who's this young man in Athens who becomes a political big shot. Um, He'll eventually, this is actually written before this takes place, but he leads the Greeks on this disastrous expedition during the middle of the um, Peloponnesian War, which we're in the middle of right now with the clouds, but it's, it's a little bit later. He, he has these failed military expeditions, but he's already by this point well-known as a man about town. And he was, at least according to the symposium, a sort of wannabe follower of Socrates. He, he wants to get that knowledge, but ultimately what he bumps up against in the account that Plato gives in the symposium is that he's not actually serious about the love of knowledge. He essentially wants gain of one form or another from it. He wants to to learn Socrates' wisdom so that then he can take it and turn it in a practical direction. So that is very much what's going on in the the sense of the clouds, right? Part of the problem is that Strepsiades has no love of wisdom himself. He Mm -hmm. just wants to get take the advantage over his creditors. Pheidippides has no desire to become a philosopher. He doesn't really want to do anything, but he, he then takes it and turns it to his advantage in a political sense, but there's that sort of parallel with Alcibiades as a fundamentally unserious disciple of Socrates that I think, I think Carl, you're absolutely right to point out is a large part of the problem here is that the people, I mean, Socrates is in the play a ridiculous figure, but Mm -hmm. the people who follow him are worse. right? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think those are, I think those are good points. And I do, I would agree. I think in general that I think that that last point from Winnie is probably the most productive way to think about it or the most interesting way at least to think about how that relationship is going on. I, I think it is clear, certainly from, from in the symposium, Aristophanes shows up as a character and is given probably usually considered to be the best speech other than right. Socrates. It's a really yeah. lo- lovely speech about love. And so from that, since we get, you know, the idea that Plato, the main follower of Socrates doesn't bear any ill will towards Aristophanes. There's a so, somewhat of a joking relationship there. Sure. To cut to like, cut through to some stuff. Do do either of you have the sense uh, that we had when we were reading uh, Voltaire's Candide that part of the overarching point of view or perspective of the clouds is that Soren was sort of getting at this that coming to discussions of philosophy with a mind to turn them to use is a sort of fruitless exercise that Strepsides obviously is coming with the idea that he can get out of debt, but Phaedipides too is someone who takes this and turns it into a practice that disrupts his family and has the potential to really do a lot of damage to society. And Aristophanes' critique may be, well be like, 
these exercises in thought are are just that and the sort of things in candide that that they find valuable at the end when they're on the farm right that that entertain them and pass their time and and cultivate them as thinkers but it's not something you use to like reform a society uh i mean that would go against a lot of things that we we talk about but like do you have that sense in reading this or, or do you think it's going in a different direction i think um for aristophanes there's a sense that and i guess perhaps or probably for voltaire too that there is practical philosophy you know there is like legitimate pragmatism where you take a philosophical approach to an issue and get a better outcome Mm -hmm. i think they're open to that but i think what they're trying really trying to take down is uh and i think aristophanes really comes through on this point is just how strong like confirmation bias is or like how strong cognitive biases are as we would call them now and so like you know as many people have shown like whatever your political valence is that doesn't necessarily say much about your intelligence. It's not that the two are related. However much one side wants to think that theirs is the most intelligent and you know interesting side. But what's more the case is that most people are drawn to information that confirms what they already believe because there's less sort of real emotional work that mm. goes on there. And I think Aristophanes probably acknowledges that the person like Socrates what makes him such a horrible figurehead for a school is that he is so rare in his ability to have the like moral bearing to change his own disposition based on new information, right? Other people, the average person, for whatever reason, that's a very hard thing to do. And so you get these main characters who are a venture capitalist or something who's like really into like Terrence McKenna so that he can like make a million dollars you know what I mean and like get get some new like vaping business off the ground right and it's a Don Draper thing at the end of Mad Men right yeah it's like this total earnestness in being a McKennaite or a philosopher for a weekend is a total sham you know it's so funny because you can just see from the outside how little real investment these kinds of people have in changing their whole life based on a philosophical exploration of ideas and values Uh, most people aren't into that you know that's that's the real love of wisdom the real philosophy that you know someone like socrates can go for but most of us you know want the payday want the cash out can i jump in here this is a bit of a tangent but i think it's related which is that to me, that's that sense of maybe philosophical impotence is baked into the way that Aristophanes is utilizing these dirty jokes. And in particular, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the idea of wind, like trapped wind, <laughs> right? Being this sort of wonderful, ready-made philosophical metaphor <laughs> that there is, you know, full of sound and fury, but signifying <laughs> nothing. Uh, these are the expulsion of hot air from the body is akin somewhat to philosophy that's never going to take root mm-hmm. anywhere. Or, or again, to think about it as like sexual frustration being, you know, a form of impotence that is mirroring the philosophical impotence of these people who want to, who want the goods, but they don't want the effort mm-hmm. that they have to go through to get it. Um, so I think that that's, that's an interesting use for all the dirty jokes in the play not necessarily that that's 
like Aristophanes was sitting down and thinking this through, but that there's a nice parallel there between those two sets of images. Sorn, do you know if um, Diogenes the Cynic is around at this time yet? I think um, he's a little bit later. Because doesn't he hang out with Alexander? Alexander is like, because he's like, get out of my son, Alexander. So I think he's a little bit later. He's like okay. Aristotle's time. 323 BC. Died. Okay, so a, a decent bit later then. Yeah. Okay. But I see a similar, I would say, legitimate philosophical move that Diogenes is doing and that Aristophanes is doing with dirty jokes or a sense of like, there's a there's a reason to like a lot of crassness and a lot mm-hmm. of bodiness as a way of, you know, looking at the method of Socrates, right? The famous, you know, reductio ad absurdum style of Socratic discourse is to take one idea that any Socratic interlocutor has in, you know, Plato's Socrates and question it so intensely that it as a unity or as a principle um, or as like an axiom can't hold. And so baked into that a little bit is a certain philosophy of logic that's called Pyrrhonism. There's no way through logic to prove ultimate metaphysical truths about the world. Ultimately, logic is going to give us first principles, an infinite regress, or a circular argument. And so serious logical analysis is ultimately useless. You can use it to prove anything. So the Socratic reductios, they don't really get us anywhere. And so what people like Diogenes and Aristophanes do is they reductio the reductio. They say like, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna out-meta you and nothing is more reductio out absurdum than a joke. You know, it's just on its face so ridiculous and so out there that it's a sort of philosophical move towards satire. Mm. And I think we saw a little bit of Voltaire doing that too. And I think that's also part of the method here, if there is one to Aristophanes. He's saying... I'm kind of ribbing Socrates here because I'm saying, okay, I can do you to you, you know, I can do your method to you and make you look ridiculous. Um, But I'm going to go over the top and, you know, call you like a farting windbag and a fool and all these different pretty crass jokes about you to show that, like, I kind of get what you're up to, but there is another step. And, you know, Diogenes would show it's like, you can go full on. Like, that's him ridiculing the whole school, too, is saying... I'm going to chop up your logic with these silly jokes and say I'm a dog and jack off in the street. Yeah. (laughs) If I may, Carl, um, that's a really illuminating point for me because it helps me understand a little bit about what I see as Aristophanes status as maybe one of the great conservative artists of all time, right? You sometimes you'll see these very smug memes on Twitter. It's like name a great conservative writer. It can't be done or something like that. Right. As if everybody was like in lockstep philosophically, but Aristophanes (laughs) is sometimes pointed to as a great conservative writer. And I think that that's, you know, whatever our particular labels are meaningless in, in terms of ancient Greece, but I think he's of a conservative disposition in some ways, at least in his approach to society. And I think one of the bigger points of the clouds beyond sort of mocking Socrates is that when you expose the workings of a society to this extreme ridicule, the reductio ad absurdum, society just can't function in some ways, right? 
there's a loss of cohesion and what you end up with is not like a liberating movement towards utopia Mm. instead it's like a son beating the crap out of his father right you have this like breakdown of order in in a society that can only come from something that exists maybe outside of the world of reason so maybe this is speculation on my part but maybe aristophanes isn't completely sold on you know the greek pantheon Mm -hmm. but he thinks if you expose that to, to ridicule and get rid of it, then what you're left with is not people like Socrates. That would be maybe okay. But it's people like Strepsiades and Phidippides and Alcibiades in real life thriving on this nihilistic view of how society should work. And so I like the idea of using the reductio to reduce the reductio as a means of sort of showing, conceding in a way, like, yes, some of society's beliefs are, I don't know what you want to call them exactly, noble lies or something like that. Like not, not really the truth or something, not the fullest understanding of how humans exi- work or how nature works or something like that. But that they are there as safeguards for human society and that the things that come in to take those illusions away are not actually any better. I like what you're what you're throwing down because I think it's making sense to me that you're saying correct me if I'm wrong that Aristophanes is sort of presenting like a a flaw in the idea of dialectic that there's not some existing form something coming to challenge it and then some synthesis produced from it but that there's existing forms with the just speech in this play for instance right that are part of the construction of the social order and then there are subversions of that, but that those subversions for Aristophanes aren't productive, really. They're not going to to result in the next thing. Neither are they revolutionary, going to tear it down and build something better. They're just cutting down. Is that like I feel like that's what you're getting at, and if that's true, I feel like that's present in our reading last season of Euripides as well, that there's a sort of fealty to the way things are in each of those poets, and a resistance to change that is seeing that change as destructive almost naturalistically. I I agree with, I'm glad you brought up Euripides. I think Euripides and Aristophanes are maybe actually on opposite ends of this, but Mm. I think what they both illustrate to some degree is a tension that exists in this moment in Athens between a sort of conservatism and a sort of destructive newness or something. And, And Euripides is maybe more on the side of the destructive newness. Aristophanes in the frogs like lampoons him he can't live up to the to the actual the, the old school playwrights but 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 i think you're right that like they're both interested in how this tension works in society that you need to have some sense of conservation of principles but then you can't i, I think aristophanes would agree with this too there can't be stagnation there mm-hmm. right. either mm-hmm. yeah i think there's so much what both of you're saying that's great yeah, the idea that, like, you know, there's no conservative or whatever. I mean, it's like small C conservative artists are everywhere, you know. Dostoevsky, obviously, we yeah. started off <laughs> yes, we started our first off podcast with a discussion of what that is and why we sort of defend that version of conservatism. But Hannah Arendt makes a great point, too. Like, if we're talking about a certain reductio, a certain um, deconstruction in the Derridian sense, Hannah Arendt calls that critical thinking, and, you know, she points out all the time that Critical thinking doesn't gain you anything. It can only be 
a way of steering a society that's about to go off a cliff back onto the mainland. <laughs> that's the only thing it's good for. It cannot gain you anything. It cannot build anything. So it's important. It's vital in you know certain times. And maybe all of the time it's vital to steer us <laughs> away from certain cliffs, right? But it's not going to produce something. And that's a whole another aspect of being a thinker and being a philosopher that's really important. There's a great point around line 225 that hits home what Soren was saying. Socrates, I walk the air in order to look down on the sun. Mm-hmm. Strepsides, but why do you need to float on a rock to scorn the gods? And we remember that Socrates must take the hemlock for corrupting the youth and blaspheming the gods. And I think here the gods means really something similar to what Soren was saying. The idea that there is some principle, Soren said, or I would say kind of like a form of life that is sort of so pertinent to so many people that we can't, it's quite dangerous to decry it or try to take it down or argue the lesser to be greater than the greater argument for it. And a lot of the play is saying the denouement to that kind of argument is, you know, fathers and sons killing each other. It's a sort of total societal chaos. Um, and I think Aristophanes' point is like, Socrates, perhaps you and very few people can walk the air and look down on the sun, but most people have to live on the ground. And I think that that's a really, that's a good point, is that it might be that Aristophanes' view of Socrates is that he is somehow like, somehow is a useful element of Athenian society but that he's so singular that he should remain mm-hmm. that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't want more than one Socrates. Him. Yeah. <laughs> no, you yeah. don't want to. You don't want to <laughs> reproduce him. And you know, it's striking to me. You know, I know we're kind of ranging all over the place here in terms of our references on Socrates, but it does seem to me that Aristophanes would want to defend Socrates against the charges of someone like Miletus in the Apology, who is making these accusations of you know, Socrates corrupting the youth, but really Miletus himself has been sort of mentally corrupted and can only speak as a sophist, right, in these these sophistries. So I think that you're right that I think Aristophanes does, I think he finds Socrates alluring in some ways and useful, but the problem then is, right, trying to transfer that over into some sort of social movement. This is bringing to mind, um, for, for me, the late work, the final work of the American sociologist Philip Reef, who uh, in his book Charisma, The Gift of Grace and How It Has Been Taken From Us, a great title, is talking about the transfer that happens between the initial foundation of any movement, particularly a religious or philosophical movement, and then what has to happen to make that into a movement itself. And so, I mean, his prime example is Jesus, sort of the initial charisma of Jesus, and he means that in a very technical sense, not like, oh, he's so charismatic, but in the sense of like the power and force of what he's saying, then has to somehow be codified in order for a movement to exist. And so you have St. Paul who comes along and basically codifies it, right? And makes it understandable for people on a scalable way, right? Is, is Reef's argument about how this works. And he can, kind of goes through other examples, but that's like sort of the problem, right? Is like, what happens when you scale Socrates? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not like, I mean, in, you can you can maybe imagine like codifying and, you know, and it did happen, codifying and yeah. scaling Jesus. I guess Plato maybe does the same thing with Socrates, but 
if you were to actually take Socrates and turn him into a mass, the, the, the leader of a mass movement, you just have chaos, right? Because nobody can hold themselves to that standard. Yeah, it's, I think that's so true. I have a much dumber analogy, which is... Um, <laughs> Good. It's like that test where it's like how many Americans think they're 1% of something. And it's like, it's like 50% <laughs> on any like specific thing. And so it's just like, what happens when you have like a society rooted in like an outcast aesthetic or something, or in like the best is not a person who understands what is good for all and can do what is good for all and a sort of bringing together social cohesion, social harmony, but someone who is so singular, so different, so unique that all of society has to be kind of pulled towards them gravitationally. What happens when you have a whole society of that? <laughs> it's not good, Aristophanes is saying. It's silly. And social forms continually break down to the point where people can't get along very well. Um, it's, it's how the play ends, you know? And I think that's, <laughs> that's an interesting moral, for sure. Since we're so far afield, uh, well, you brought us back, but since we're, we were briefly far afield, I also feel like the Aristophanic moment continues and that there's a sort of like skepticism that's been instilled in the American population that is just like disconnected from any sort of school of thought. And it's just skepticism unleashed it has proven pretty damaging already. And I think that's, you know, 2000 plus years later, you can feel it in this. Yeah, that's um, the enlightened false consciousness of Peter Sloterdijk's Peter Sloterdijk's the critique of cynical reason, which mm. is like he's talking about Diogenes and He's talking about the present, too. I think it's totally come back around to that in many ways. So here's like a mini thesis that I wrote at the end of the play that I thought maybe sums up something or maybe doesn't. And this is to our question whether or not Aristophanes is an anti-philosopher. At its worst, philosophy deceives us of our most universal and genuine moral intuitions. Intelligence is no sure indicator of goodness and while goodness can be learned, all too often it is, quote-unquote, official learning whereby we unlearn it. So that's what makes the, uh, what is yours called, Soren? The thinkatory? Mine's called the pondertorium in my translation. Pondertorium? Oh, mine's yeah. also <laughs> the thinkery. The thinkery is like always what I have, yeah. I like the pondertorium, that's good. <laughs> so that's perhaps what happens in pondertoriums and thinkeries, is we are made to think that our most genuine moral intuitions are not credible enough and therefore we sort of unlearn how to be good one of the most striking parts of the play to me is near the end when socrates carts out these two figures in my translation they are sophistry and philosophy mm. philosophy representing sort of the old school philosophical thought sophistry being this new school and they're going back and forth about which one is better, and they're talking through these things. And it's pretty clear that philosophy is, in the end, the best. But what's striking about it is that they're both rolled out in these cages, right, to be sort of performing animals for the pleasure of Socrates and his disciples. And, and there's that sense of official learning being this place where you come in and put real wisdom or real philosophy into this straight jacket and it is there to be turned towards some end rather than to be sort of unleashed in its purest form 
to me, that brought us to an interesting moment in the play where Aristophanes is really thinking about like, what is it, what does it mean to have all of these intellectual tools at your disposal? It isn't necessarily going to lead to good, productive thought. We already made our cracks about graduate school last night. <laughs> I know. I was thinking yeah. this is really, a, <laughs> everyone holds this is really ripe for it. In my, in my translation, those are just speech and unjust speech. Ooh, I like that for the for the moral element there too. It's yeah, and and they even say in the footnote like sometimes there's a strong speech and weak speech because that's how they talk about it occasionally throughout, and they're like we we don't want to go without that. that's wrong. They they say anyway. Yeah, I I like this part too, and I think that uh, it has a nice talking about small c conservative values. <laughs> I don't want to use the phrase conservative values, but whatever. <laughs> um, the just speech is like setting up the city holds these things like dear or important, right? All of these guardrails we've said are structures and unjust speech who is sort of a dandyish uh, figure saying like you, you slew roses at me when you say these insults like these are these are actually good things don't you realize their way of arguing is by like just like individual counterexample, which i find interesting uh which is uh, like for instance when they're talking about taking hot baths is that it translated the same for yours <laughs> just speech is like you don't take hot baths because it's going to make you weak to be a strong man and take cold baths and then the counterexample is heracles don't you know Her- all heraclitus Her- all of heracles baths are hot baths like there's always that one counterexample um that undercuts the whole thing uh i just throwing that out there i love it it's just like the weak argument but it's enough that makes me wonder i don't actually know i yeah off the top of my head i can't think of any reference to him maybe carl knows better but that brings to mind sort of Nietzsche's criticism of Socrates. Mm. Um, I'm thinking about in Twilight, Twilight of the Idols in particular, um, but also thinking about it in The Birth of Tragedy, the sort of Dionysian and Apollinian. But this idea that essentially Socrates is just this, he's a weak figure. And so what he does is he attacks by finding that one point, the mm-hmm. weak, the one weak point. Instead of trying to think through in like this, whatever, what Nietzsche wants, there's like this grand system of thought that he thinks that the Greeks have, that the tragic Greeks have. He's like the guy who's going for your kneecap or something and just like <laughs> has this stupid objection that you can't actually answer. And so yeah, it's yeah. like, aha, I got you here, right? The, the the really awful, like the person who finds that one example of why you're wrong and, and runs with it. That's what he's teaching Strepsiades early on. And he, when he has these great like airy metaphors of like, let loose your thought into the air the same way they've been talking about their farts being trapped in blankets and stuff. And uh, Socrates tells Strepsiades around line 740 to let your subtle thought loose. Think about your troubles in small parts. And then uh, when Strepsiades is under his blanket, beset by bugs, Socrates says, if you're perplexed over any of your intellections, leave it, go away, then set your judgment back in motion and weigh it up again. It's sort of like the the characterized version of Socrates, is, as was Soren was just saying, don't dwell on that don't if you're perplexed don't sit in your perplexion and and figure it out just let go come back and revisit it from another angle until you find that kneecap and then (laughs) chip away at it i suppose i should specify that i don't hold to that view yeah 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 right yeah i was gonna make a terrible joke i was gonna say maybe uh for nietzsche socrates is the golden eye slappers only edition where you just (laughs) going around and it's a bit petty it's a bit ridiculous 
<laughs> or like slappers, but like one hit kills. Yeah. <laughs> slappers, one hit kills. Socrates is that kid who picks odd job before odd everybody job. else. <laughs> and he He's that kid it. at the sleepover yeah, that exactly. like I guess he won I guess he won all of the golden eye matches he played, but is he really that good? No. He's just looking at your screen <laughs> and he finds yeah. where you are. Around line three sixty five, Tripsides and Socrates are arguing, and this is, you know, the time where we are ripe for Socratic reductio ad absurdum, Socrates is going to outthink Stripsides. Or is Stripsides in some joking way going to prove that it's Aristophanes who can sort of out reductio, the master of reductio? And it seems important that we're hitting on, you know, how clouds work in two senses. Stripsides, what are you saying? Who is it that makes rain then? Socrates, why the clouds, of course, I'll prove it to you. Does it ever rain without clouds? No, and you would have thought that Zeus could have made rain on his own if he so desired without the help of the clouds. Stripsides, and I always thought it was Zeus pissing through a sieve. You certainly have a way with words. That makes complete sense. But hold on, who makes the thunder that makes me shake in terror? Socrates, it is just the clouds rocking in the sky. Stripsides, is nothing sacred? How do they do that? Socrates, simple, when they become completely saturated with moisture, they are forced by necessity to begin to oscillate to and fro. Every now and again they ram each other, and of course, being packed with precipitation, crash, a cloudburst. Stripsides, but surely someone must force them to move in the first place. That must be Zeus. Uh, and they continue in this way, but I think Aristophanes is doing something here that, again, as it did with the Bacchae, maybe jars against our our modern scientific worldview, which is to say to have no room for Zeus in a certain conception of why things work, not necessarily how things work, is to have lost something about how society ought to think or how, to, how it ought to operate. I don't know what exactly is ribbing here and what is argumentation on Aristophanes' part, but it seemed quite important with respect to how the clouds work. Are the clouds mere saturation of moisture or are they moved in the first place by zeus carl you're kind of getting at like a disenchantment idea right that there's like these explanations of how things happen but that still doesn't get to the bottom of like that heisenberg quote where it's like the first cup from science or whatever makes you an atheist or the, the, the bottom <laughs> of the cup still has god waiting for you right that's what there's like an ignorance of like the why behind that like how is that that's what you're asking about right well, I mean, whatever we want to take as like post-Greek or a Greek sense of gods and a certain, yeah, you can think of it in terms of disenchantment or enchantment. But in my translation, it's emphasized the word necessity here that mm. Socrates uses is ananke, which I guess is a personified force then. But I mean, we can think of it, you know, very much in terms of like, uh, again, going back to Candide, a hard determinist world where... Mm. The mechanisms are in place and nature works in a specific way with no other import or there's there's nothing else to think about nature other than it's a clock working mm -hmm. and you're but a cog in it. Strepsides seems to be standing up for the very least like a Aristotelian unmoved mover, you know, something to move the things that move, which is like a squaring of the circle in some ways, or perhaps the clouds themselves, this force that if Socrates is going to stand in the air to look down at the sun, Aristophanes and the clouds are going to be above him in his air and piss down on him. 
I mean, importantly for me, the clouds are then like, yeah, mocking Stripsides or Socrates in two important ways, which is the follow-up right after this is that Socrates continues to explain this naturalistic cloud formation and dumping as like the way his farts form. He's like, don't you remember when you eat that stew and it brims in your it bubbles in your belly and then eventually uh, it has to re- like release its energies. Same thing, Strepsides. It's the same thing. But also when they're looking at the clouds initially and talking about them, he's saying like all of our forms are reflected in the clouds. And when you look up, you see, if you're thinking about X, you see Y. And if you're thinking about Y, you see Z. And like the clouds just become correspondent to whatever you are already thinking of or, or concerned with. And so they're they sort of just their air right their vapor and they they don't in the same way like if he thinks he's looking at, up at them and seeing significance he's saying but they're doing that for almost anything right like you can assign that significance to the clouds no matter what you're seeing they become like a catch-all in the same way the reductio ad absurdum is reducing all i guess i was gonna say that there's some reason to keep on to non-physicalism or something more than pure naturalism or pure clockwork universe and I'm interested in what that is and how that connects to the clouds. It could be, as Friedrich is saying, in a way that's highly symbolic or subjective. Obviously, for like a theological thinker, it's something divine or super mundane. Mm-hmm. But I think even for, if you like the philosopher Wilfred Sellers, he has a really good kind of different form of dualism where there is still some imminent frame kind of view of how the world looks to any like human being that it can't be squared in purely uh, naturalistic terms and Salarzian philosophers take that view as like really important and sort of irreducible to pure naturalism or pure physicalism at least many of them do what I'm wondering at this point like what does it do to our understanding of the play that the clouds are in fact characters in the play in the form of the chorus how does that does that alter our understanding of what aristophanes is getting at with regard to the because they don't seem to quite line up with what socrates thinks that they are doing as these sort of i I like that reading carl of a sort of a more deterministic view of nature and how those things are working and then maybe strepsiades has but they're there as sort of independent figures in the play as well and i'm not really sure what to do with that like why they exist as the the chorus and what they're doing there as characters and how that alters our understanding of the place that they might be occupying here in my edition again there's a really interesting scholarly introduction and the scholar ian story breaks down a lot of aristophanian comedies into a few parts, and these parts are really important for Soren's question, what is the role or what is the purpose of the clouds? And what Story calls the most curious formal feature of old comedy is parabasis, a part sung by the chorus with the actors offstage directed to the audience and at a natural break in the action. And this seems to be like a key turning point, and depending on the play, we end up siding with the comedic hero or protagonist or watching their downfall. So they definitely have the most weight, I think, 
in the play, and they are the ones who can comment uh, literally and figuratively from outside of this debate between Socrates and Cercides. This does remind me, Carl, when you mentioned the parabasis, what I'm taking to be the parabasis of this play is, to me, a very strange section, and maybe we can finish with this. In my translation, William Aerosmith has chosen to translate this, what, what's being spoken by the chorus leader, the chorophion, he translates as being spoken by Aristophanes, and the justification he gives is that it's clearly Aristophanes speaking because he's talking about all these plays that he's written. Whatever you make of that, whether it's Aristophanes, the chorus leader, whatever, it's this weird long speech that seems, I think, very strange to us because it's, I guess you would say it's sort of meta, right? It's, it's all about the plays that he's written and how people don't like good comedies, they only like stupid comedies. And he says stuff like, you know, I'm not going to write a comedy where we make fun of bald people, and I'm not going to write a comedy where an old man gets beaten with a stick. But as Aerosmith um, points out in the notes to my edition, all of these things that he says he's not going to do, he actually ends up doing by the end of the play, right? People are getting whacked right and left with sticks and all of these things. And so it's a strange moment where he's sort of, it's almost a moment of pure aesthetic elation where he's saying like, I could give you all these cheap tricks, but I'm too good of a playwright to give you this base stuff except he's like holding that out with one hand and then with the other he's like giving us all this stuff anyway he's giving us all these cheap dirty jokes as well it's a really strange moment to me where he is almost trying to have it both ways he wants to claim himself as the greatest comedian in Athens which I mean he sort of is by default for us because he's the only one whose plays survive. But I think he also does have that reputation in Athens as, as the greatest of, of the comedians. Um, and he's he's putting himself in this superior position. But then he's also sort of delighting in his ability to press those buttons as well. So there's a really interesting sort of meta-theater point that Soren brings us to in the Parabasis proper. At the end of it, in my edition, we get these like rhyming couplets, which are a sort of uh, there's maybe a double irony or something on this sense of we're not going to get the poor quality of rotten old jokes. What's more, you will certainly not encounter anybody charging on stage with flaming torches shouting, oh no, no, this play comes here today trusting only in itself and its poetry. And then we end with the poetry. Zeus, the highest god of all, greatest ruler, hear our call. Come Poseidon with trident flashing from salty depths with breakers crashing. The sky father that witnessed our birth, most sacred nurturer of life on earth. The charioteer who fills our days with the light, heat, and brilliant rays. To God and mortal, great power advance. We call you all to join our dance. We get these rhyming couplets and... We're meant to see that this is a cheap trick, but because we've been shown that cheap tricks are coming and we're not <laughs> supposed to look for them, it's kind of funny and it's very uh, Norm MacDonald-esque that we come right back to it and we explain our bad joke so long that it kind of becomes all the way back around to a funny joke again. R.I.P. Um, this, this is how the clouds sort of validate and ridicule, and so they allow for a Socratic distance from certain things. But what is the ultimate importance of that distance? Not one that should destroy our society or destroy all our principles, according to Aristophanes. It's just a way, ultimately, to let us laugh at ourselves a little bit more and a little bit better. I love that. I love that sense of wanting... Maybe Aristophanes just wants to have it both ways. Mm. He wants 
it's not that he he doesn't want to kill Socrates. He wants him around, but he also wants to be able to make fun of him and hold him at arm's length and ridicule him and have kind of everything all together at once. And, th- and maybe that's like goes back then to the capaciousness of comedy that can accomplish yeah. something that other things can't. This ability to hold these um, multiplicities inside of itself. I mean, Car- Carl brought us to Norm Macdonald. And, you know, if we're thinking about comedy, we always have to keep in mind that like, people talk about comedy always punches down it punches up whatever but for norm it would just be like it's just supposed to be funny and there's a quality of that in aristophanes they're like it is funny that that is part of its purpose <laughs> yeah. and it succeeds in that that's as good a place as any to 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 stop for this time thank you all for being with us uh, we've had some fun here we're going in a very different direction next time we are completing our circuit around the key to all mythologies with Friedrich's first pick of the season, quite a bit different in tone and scope. It is Gao Xingzhan's novel, Soul Mountain. Uh, it's quite a bit more capacious than either of the, the two works we read before. It's maybe more serious, although there is humor in it as well. And uh, we're very ex- excited to, t- to talk through it with you. It's, it's a text I'm assuming many of our listeners will not be familiar with, uh, but it's, it's well worth the journey up the mountain. So we hope you'll join us for that uh, next time. Until then, though, we're going to let Cat keyboard, play us out. Oh, those Russians. Please welcome the incoherent Norm MacDonald. And Cloris Leachman is here. Cloris. Cloris, if people say you're over the hill, don't believe them. Why, you'll never be over the hill, not in the car you drive. Greg Giraldo is here. He has the grace of a swan, the wisdom of an owl, and the eye of an eagle. Ladies and gentlemen, this man is for the birds. <laughs> Gilbert Godfrey, one of my best friends. I love Gilbert. When you go to the men's room later, you'll see a sign that says, Gentlemen, pay no heed, go right in. There's no room that says scoundrel on it. 